What's going on, everyone? You know, we had a crazy weekend of fights last week. Same thing's happening this week. PFL just finished. Bellator tonight. UFC tomorrow. And, you know, when we look back at the UFC card at last week, you know, Yuri Proksha, I mean, he did what he had to do. I think Dominic Reyes, he was still the underdog, so he knew that going into it. But at the same time, when you look at some of those moments where he just needed to keep his hands up early on, you know, he took a lot of blows. I think that when a fighter keeps his hands down like that and tries to just eat the punches i think that's a little bit disrespect to the other fighter because when you look at the way yuri started landing as the fight went on it just got more powerful more powerful recurring broken nose and then boom the elbow hurt around the world all over the place you name the social media platform it's on there and so i think he set the tone for his career people are basically throwing rackets um to the dogs right now and saying that yuri deserves the shot my opinion let these two uh, wonderful old timers in Glover Deshera and Jan Blachowicz fight and have these two fight for that opportunity. I think that there's an argument for both sides. A lot of the recency bias on Rakic against his Thiago Santos fight. But at the same time, you know, Yuri's only fought two guys. Really good guys. No, no questions there. But I think that there is an opportunity for two of your biggest you know, light heavyweight contenders in a division that seems fairly de depleted to at least build up to a, to a title shot against the winner of the Jan and Glover fight. Again, my most anticipated fight of the year. Um, going into this weekend, first things first with UFC Vegas 26, pretty bad news with, uh, you know, Ryan Benoit and Felipe Linz. Felipe Linz didn't even show up for the weigh-in. So what does that mean? We lose the big Ben Rothwell uh, <clears throat> prelim main event, which absolutely sucks. I love watching the guy fight, talk, He's just been around, done everything. You know, I had a big spiel ready to go about him. And when you look at the way his career has gone, it's like other than the Cain Velasquez's and the Andre Olovskis of the world, I mean, this guy's just seen it all, done it all. And, you know, I think for him to be able to prepare for a fight camp, put in all that work, and for a man not to show up to the weigh-ins, I can only imagine how furious Big Ben Rothwell is right now. And my heart goes out to him because I know he's probably put in that work. And then the next one is Ryan Benoit. That's a kid that I've absolutely loved watching fight. He always brings a good competitive fight to whoever he's fighting. Close decision losses is <clears throat> kind of his MO. But, you know, poor kid was basically fainting on, on the on the stage there. And the fact that we were even letting him weigh in was, was a questionable uh, thing in the first place. You know, I'm not trying to just say it's, it's a specific NCSC uh, type of situation or is it on the team or anything like that. I'm just thinking that if you're cutting weight for a specific event, if that's how it's going with so many people doing there's just something extra is going wrong and that needs to be addressed you know michael chandler had a very good comment on this and saying that you know it should be up to the fighters a little bit and even the teams because there needs to be discipline there needs to be an aspect of just you know how long does it take you to get down to that weight because you know if you're basically procrastinating i don't want to use that word but you know if you're basically cutting that last few pounds and it looks like that chances are you're probably walking around at a certain weight where you know with how your weight plan goals are, are going it's just not adding up there and hey, it sucks to lose that fight because zaruka dash have had an incredible fight against muderji su which i thought was you know one of the better fights to just see some up-and-comers coming out of asia taking the UFC by storm. That was a beautiful fight for both those guys. And Adash have had a great chance against Ryan Brenoir to kind of right the ship. And unfortunately, we lost that fight too. So two big fights gone. The other big piece of news is that Diego Ferreira weighed in at 160 and a half for his lightweight belt against Gregor Gillespie. So, I mean, we know what what, what kind of happens there. He's going to lose 30% of that purse to Gregor. And good for him because he's missed a few fights over the last year. So that's going to be nice. But, you know, we'll get into that fight in a bit more detail. And, 
kicking off the card, we got a guy, you know, who, who's kind of seen it all, done it all in Christian, Christian Aguilera, and he's taking on UFC newcomer Carlston Harris. Now, these are two guys that in doing research, you know, very limited tape on Carlston Harris. But like when you look at it, he loves the arms chokes. He's got a lot of, you know, he's got Darces under under his belt. Actually, the Darce choke is what he landed on uh, UAE Warriors, which was Dana White's looking for a fighter uh, series. And, and I thought that was phenomenal for him because it, it looked like such a clean finish. He went 3-0 and after losing his Brave FC title. So, you know, the, the kid that we don't really see much of, you know, Shooto Brazil, XFC, Brave FC champion, you know, UAE Warriors. So, you know, he, he's kind of seen it all very little bits and pieces you know across the world and now gets the opportunity to do it in the ufc when we look at christian aguilera just from you know a starting point i feel like he he's kind of that more american bred great boxer lfa experience cffc experience when you look at his one-in-one record in the ufc it's like you go from ivy where footwork was perfect landed so clean you know guy's got 11 ko's on his record so he's just we know what he brings to the table and so I think then the Sean Brady fight, you basically took on what I believe is a top five to a top 10 fighter uh, within the year, if not, you know, six months. Because Sean Brady, when he fights, you can just see how good he is, right? Times your leg kicks for his takedowns, lines up your jab for his much more powerful uh, hooks and things like that. So that's the one area where I really did like Christian Aguilera in that fight was, you know, the boxing skills were obvious because he was landing. And I think that there were a few shots that actually caught Sean Brady by surprise because it kind of, you know, stumbled him just a little bit there. And that's what takes me into a, a questionable situation with a guy like Carlson Harris, who, you know, a lot of people are going to wonder what kind of competition is he faced, things like that. But, you know, both these guys love that overhand right. Carlson Harris sets it up with the jab and he kind of throws it a bit lazy. Whereas with a guy like Christian Aguilera, I feel like the boxing's a bit more tighter. You know, I don't think he's going to get caught so much with these looping strikes, things like that. I think if Carlson comes in a bit more crisp and uses that distance, uses that length to keep him at bay and then swing those punches in, he has a chance. You know, we've seen Christian Aguilera get taken down by <clears throat> um, knockouts in the past. You know, I think it's four of his losses are actually via KOs. And so, you know, the, the chin opportunity is there. It's just... I don't think Christian Aguilar, especially in the first round, is a guy that you can be that sloppy with. Because even with Sean Brady, you know, he has that kind of finishing move with the guillotine. That's how he got his win uh, against Christian. And so in this case, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you have a pretty good clinch game up against the fence. You're able to get guys into chokes from standing positions and drag them to the ground. You know, that's where I'm seeing Carlson Harris have a lot of success. You know, use the kicks, use the calf kicks, body shots, slow the guy down, take away that power. Because I think the moment Christian Aguilar loses the power in his strikes, it's really kind of Carlson's, you know, opportunity there to, to, to take the fight where he wants. And now it's going to come down to strength, cardio, things like that. And that's where I actually think Christian Aguilera, at least in the early parts of the round, from a strength perspective, should have a huge advantage. And in this case, with the secret power that Carlson Harris is bringing and the good striking, I just think that it's going to be nice to see how good that fares against what we would consider very crisp MMA boxing in a fighter like Christian Aguilera. And when you look at their recent fights, you know, we kind of broke down Carlson Harris a bit better, but, you know, one and one, Sean Brady, Ivy was the debut coming out of, um, you know, some, some really good fights on the regional scene for Christian Aguilera. So that's where I'm actually really enjoying this fight because I think it's two guys who kind of two different types of regional scene perspectives, despite Carlson Harris is literally being global. I think that's what's going to separate these two going into this. You know, we'll take a look at the lines in a bit, but I really do think that some kind of an under 
uh, is, is an opportunity here because Christian Aguilar does have the power. And I think when he finds his timing, finds his reach, he's able to kind of dictate that type of style of fight. But when you look at Carlson, you know, when he smells blood, he's really good at getting up against the fence, working in submissions. And like I said, he's, he's, he's dropped, you know, there's two guys you've been able to see uh, in terms of, you know, video footage that he just throws that jab and just comes over with that overhand, right. And guys are out, you know, they're falling backwards. Like they're taking the nesty plunge. So for me, I, I like the exciting aspect of this. It's just really hard to gauge who's going to have that massive advantage. But I do think that from the length perspective, distance striking, clinching, Carlson should have a bit of advantage, but I don't know, experience, boxing, and just overall, uh, I think, you know, competition you'd have to give the edge to Christian Aguilera. So, so let's take a quick look at the lines. Like I said, the under and, um, you know, not go the distance, things like that are obviously in play here, but whoa. Yeah. So I mean, Christian Aguilera and, and Harris opened up as basically minus 15, you know, even money across the board here, but this is significant line movement. And so when you're looking at Carlston Harris, I mean, some guys are giving it to you at minus seven, minus 170 with Christian Aguilera getting it at plus, 145, plus 145. I mean, I can't even say my words because I'm so shocked by this. That, that's that's significant uh, jump when you think about just overall experience, what people might have seen. You know, maybe the one YouTube video that's out right now is what everybody's looking at. Now they're going and, you know, pounding on um, Carlson Harris because his finishes have just been so clean and beautiful. But, you know, do not count out a guy like Christian Aguilera. Despite the chin in four of his fights, I mean, the guy's a gamer. He's been able to just drop fighters himself and i think that if carlson harris is not careful in the first two rounds especially if he can't tire him out work those legs and, and dictate that kind of pace where you know towards the later part of the rounds he's able to kind of maybe lock something up and get a finish or even steal a decision or a very close one because i mean i'm actually quite surprised by these lines i think that carlson harris does have an opportunity here to surprise a few folks but the fact that christian aguilera is an underdog tells me that it's not a surprise at all Tafan and Chukwi, is there a guy off the Dana White Contender Series right now that isn't more, you know, exciting? When you think about the way he picked apart Jamie Pickett, like that wasn't, he wasn't able to finish that fight. But when you go look at the judges' scorecards, they were 30-26, 30-26, and 30-25. So, you know, Tafan is coming in here with a lot of hype, in my opinion. I think that when you're looking, when you're looking at the striking in those first few rounds, you know, he definitely rocked Pickett. In, in so many circumstances, but I think Pickett was very good at getting his feet under him, getting his wits back. But when you're looking at this fight, you know, similar situation because my boy Park has never been finished via strikes and he's been in some serious clinics. The one thing I like about, you know, Junior Park in this one is that he's able to take this fight to the ground. I think that if he's able to avoid a lot of these, you know, power strikes and not even take much damage and to a chin that hasn't even been finished yet, I think he could surprise a lot of people in this fight because if I'm not, if I'm, you know, I'm going to have to lean with Nchukwe being, you know, somewhat of a favorite here only because of the fact that we see the style of fight he brings. We know what exciting fighters look like. You know, he's thick, but he had good cardio even in the third round uh, of his fight with Pickett. But at the same time, you know, when you're judging power strikes, things like that, there were moments where you were like, oh, wow, like, you know, you're kind of just like wasting your own shots and you can see the power kind of diminishing as he lands them. But, you know, the big thing was even in that third round against Jamie Pickett, there was a moment where, you know, a submission attempt or even trying to lock up the body and get a bit more of an opportune position was such a better decision. And it seemed like he was just very okay with trying to fill him out, trying to get that ground and pound victory. And I think it was 
Paul Felder, maybe someone else that actually mentioned that, you know, in, in those moments, it just seemed like there were so many ways over the course of that fight for him to really get that dub a little earlier. And it almost seemed like he didn't take advantage. But the thing that I liked was he, he really did show the cardio. And I think with guys like him that, you know, come in thicker, throw a lot of strikes, especially powerful ones, you know, you can always question whether or not they're going to look the, the same fighter later. And most of the time they don't. In his case, what I did like was the cardio was there. He was able to dictate pace. He was able to get the fight to the ground when he needed to. And he was able to continuously land ground strikes despite losing the power when the time came uh, with Jamie Pickett on his back. So, you know, those are the things that I take away from Tafana. I think that he did really well in that fight to earn himself that shot on uh, the day uh, uh, in the UFC. But, you know, Jingyo Park, never been finished the or via strikes the one thing i love about him is that anthony hernandez fight anthony hernandez just taking bodies with with his with his jujitsu but you know i really like this fight because jingle park outside of that one i mean i think he has an opportunity to pull this off i think this could be a really fun fight when it's on the feet but if the fighter is smart and they go in with a specific game plan i wouldn't be surprised to see park pull off somewhat of a similar style that he's that we've seen in the past where mix it up work the you know work the changing levels get it to the ground get some you know make tafan work off his back because i think if there's a situation where you know mentally you're already feeling a bit exasperated and then physically that's where your cardio gets worked the most and the clinic you know, I think that was great clinch work from both guys in their previous fights. And so, especially Tafan, actually. So in those situations, like, if you can get this fight to the ground, especially with a guy like Tafan who's going to have to work his way up, it could be interesting to see because that could be another situation of technique versus power because it'd be surprising to see if Tafan wasn't the more powerful and stronger guy. I think that this was a beautifully set up fight coming out of his Dana Waite Contender Series fight. And the 75% takedown defense on Nchukwe's side out of that uh, you know Dana White Contender Series fight is something to you know consider because I think that if Park can't get this fight to the ground and he has to deal with what does look like a very powerful and strong fighter who if he can get in close on you is going to actually try to you know get you against fence fill you with a lot of close but quick and powerful strikes take you to the ground working more ground and pound that's what i liked about his game was despite the the style that he has and the body structure he comes into the fight with he looked phenomenal so that's where for me i'm actually really excited for this one if, if park isn't the better grappler this is going to be an insane fight because i think it's going to be a lot of back and forth but you know i think outside the clinch work that's where both these guys are going to get a really 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 good opportunity here to kind of take their ufc career to the next level and you know when you think about tafan and what he's done in his career it's it's still new you know, I think that despite being, you know, a guy who's seen, you know, five fights only, he's only 26, he's getting a shot at the UFC, and Jing Ho Park could be the one to, to, to bring him back down to reality. You know, I think that that's a fighter that people might be, you know, not considering as a big favorite just because of the styles, but we're going to take a look at the lines right now and see what's popping. Wow. And there it is. Tafan and Chukwi open as a minus 175 favorite. And now Park's, uh, you know, well, he was a plus 130 dog. Now he's moving to plus 110. So right now we have across the board him coming at about a plus 110, plus 120. And Tafan being about the minus 140, minus 145 range. Now that pretty much lines up with what I was saying because I think that Tafan is the better stand-up fighter. And like I said, if, if the cardio wasn't there against Pickett, then it would be somewhat of a concern. But if this fight does not get to the ground, I, I'm, I'm thinking Jing Ho Park's going to have to do a lot uh, 
to kind of get this fight into an area where he sees the most success because in close, even a distance, despite some of the size, I just think this is going to be a tough one for him. And I'm excited because I think that if, if Park can pull off the upset, He's the kind of guy that you want to see fight more, right? Doesn't really get finished via strikes, is able to throw. I think Tafan's going to have to really use that distance, break him down, use the kicks to avoid the ground. And as the opportunities arise, bang, bang, boom, rock him, sock him. Swinging and banging, baby. So like we said, the next fight should have actually been the Ryan Benoit and uh, Zergadashev fight. So, you know, we're going to get right into the one after that, which is probably one of the more exciting fights on the card across the board, right? We got the Michael Trezano and Ludovic Klein fight. Now, I've personally seen Mike Trezano in one of the better cards I could have probably ever witnessed in my bachelor party. It was the Friday fight where Israel Adesanya headlined with Brad Tavares before the Miocic-Cormier fight. So that was actually a fun, fun, fun experience. And I got to see Trezano and, you know, all that was one of my favorite toughs. And I'm not being biased because I got to see the finale. But a lot of these guys just are now in the UFC and they're able to sustain pretty good longevity. It looks like they, they have what it takes, win or lose. And, you know, there are a lot of everybody talks about that when you lose that mentality of just chasing the titles, and things like that. But bring in good fights and try to win more than you lose. And those are the things that make up the rest of the roster, right? And I think that that's where we have two guys where, you know, I'm not trying to write them out completely from title contention, but at the same time, it's like, these are the guys we love watching. And I don't think it matters if they win a title or not. Because Mike Trezano, like I said, eight and one. Now the Grant Dawson fight, you know, Grant Dawson's an absolute monster, right? I think that he's coming out of that James Krause camp is one of the, you know, brighter spots. And, you know, Jeff Molina, that's a guy I was praising earlier, but you know, Dawson's being that longtime guy that we've always heard about. And, you know, I think he proved himself in that fight. The one thing I, I want to say about uh, Ludovic Klein is, is that he's just an absolute beast, right? Go look at the tape. I think Trezano's a good kickboxer, but he might be more technical than he is powerful. And Ludovic just brings it, man. That 17-2 record is just no joke. I think that one of the things that you see from... Um, you know, the Joe Giannetti fight was that it was just close, right? Like, that's what I'm seeing about the uh, the Trezano style is that he, he keeps the fights pretty close. He keeps it exciting. But what, what bothers me in this one is Ludovic Klein can just absolutely demolish you. He pushes the pressure. Some of his finishes, man, are, are just absolutely gorgeous. He's riding. This is one of the most beautiful stats that you can see right now. But he's riding a three-fight win streak via head kick. So he's 3-0 and in his last three, all by head kick knockout wins. And so the last one he actually did was in the UFC. That was the most fun that we've seen. You know, I think that if you if you think about all of that type of hype, it's hard to go against a guy like Ludovic, right? You know, Shane Young was was the, was the tough one. That's a great kickboxer. You know, city kickboxing, we know how good those guys are when it comes to the stand-up game. And to be honest, Shane Young did, did well in his last fight too. It's just he's getting a lot of tough opponents where he has to take his game to the next level very quickly. And, you know, when I'm talking about this one, it's like, let me go take a look at the lines right now. And I... I for some reason, I just wanted to speed up that process because I knew where it was going. And, you know, Ludovic is 100% coming in at a minus 240 favorite. And to be honest, it hasn't moved much. In fact, if it has, it's gone the other way. So he's actually now sitting closer to a minus 250 favorite. And Trezano opened at a plus 190, but is now seeing that range of the plus 200s. And so when you think about that kind of stuff, I mean, you know, Ludovic is, is now obviously looking for four head kicks in a row. I mean, that's one thing. But Trezano has to be smart. 
I think in this case, he's going to have to use distance striking. He cannot get in close. He cannot keep his hands down. And, you know, if he thinks he has an advantage on the ground, then maybe work it in close. Get some good clinch work in. Maybe work it to the ground. But the thing for me is, like, you have to just keep those hands up because I think Ludovic just has a lot of power. And some of the combos he throws, man, it's just he ends it so beautifully on his head kick. That just drops people. And I think that if he were to pull that off again in the UFC, we're looking at a, a main card type of fighter, you know, moving forward. There's no way they don't get him another, you know, big time opponent. Because again, Shane Young and Mike Trezano, again, if it goes down that road, are two guys that are very well contested when it comes to UFC talent. And these are guys that I don't see going away anytime soon if if they're able to kind of even get one win under their belt because the talent is there. And so with this fight, I just really want to see what both these guys can bring to the table because they're lining up a huge, huge opportunity. And you know what? If Trezano pulls off this upset, I think there's a lot of people that are going to be happy for him because when you think about just how much people are talking about Ludovic Klein as the guy that just came out of nowhere onto the UFC scene, then lands that big head kick knockout in the first round and now goes in on a three fight win streak via head kicks. I mean, there's nothing really much more to say about this fight. I think that Trezano does have an opportunity as a great kickboxer to avoid some of these big blows. I think that if he uses his hands and tries to kind of dictate a little bit more of changing levels, things like that, because the thing with Ludovic is he just seems to really love striking. And I think that when he gets the timing down, he's actually outpacing and outclassing all of his opponents. But, you know, this is the UFC. And Shane Young played played very much his kickboxing game. And, you know, another kickboxer going up against another kickboxer. So it's not like the UFC's titling these fights as, like, kickboxing event and stuff like that. But, like, these are two pretty good kickboxers. One's a very technical counter-striker, and the other one's a fucking whoop. And one's a very powerful man. And so that's when, for me, I, I'm really excited about this one. I think I would put it in my top three fights on the card, hands down. Next fight is probably my top one. You could probably guess why, but, you know... Uh, if, if, if you had to pick somebody at this point, it's going to be Ludovic. Can he land that head kick knockout? That's questionable. You know, like I said, Trezano's lost the uh, uh, rear naked choke to Grant Dawson in the second. For that to be basically is, you know, second fight the UFC after that uh, tough finale in 2018. I mean, that's a big deal. So I'm excited to see him get back in there. I do think Ludovic has a huge advantage here, but... Again, we've seen crazy things in the UFC and wouldn't be surprised if, if, if Mike Rosano pulls this one off. How is this fight not on the main card? I don't understand it. Doesn't make sense. Now I got to plan my day around the third prelim. It's kind of crazy. But anyways, you know, I've talked about this fight already. I've raved about Kyle Dawkins probably more than any other fighter in the UFC right now. If you want to see me really bob on the knob, go check out the uh, UFC prospect watch for the month of April. And also, you know, this fight has been rescheduled. So I've, I've talked about Kyle Dawkins quite a bit. You know, there's things about his length that I love. He's got crazy heart. The Brendan Allen fight is probably in my top three fights of the year for 20 2020 the kid just i cannot believe what he's able and willing to take on in the ufc already at that 10 and 1 record i break down even some of his you know opponents records which is absolutely insane it's like three losses versus like over 40 50 wins it's just he's he's going up against the best prospects as one of the best prospects and i mean if there's anything that's going to build your game up it's probably that but you know we got that philly jersey matchup here and i'm really excited about it i think that Phil Hawes 
there's something about him that, you know, that Imavov fight, for example, is one that I also look forward to for so long that we saw that happen. And how amazing was that fight? You know, he won the majority decision. I think that he did get out outdone on the striking department because Imavov is a great little kickboxer there. But, you know, he was able to work in the clinch game, work in the ground and pound, stuff like that, which is where I think that he has an opportunity here. I think that Kyle Dox is really great at using his length. And man, you cannot touch Philly fighters when it comes to boxing. Chris Dawkins, his brother, is just lighting up people on their feet in, in, in the heavyweight division now in the UFC. And to be quite honest, Kyle Dawkins, man, he brings in good size. He's got good length for the division. I think that he's just, you know, that broad shoulder kind of kid, man. And I think that his wrestling looked pretty good. And, you know, the one thing that I absolutely love about Kyle Dawkins is that very underrated 94% takedown defense. I think that in the fights that he's been in, the guys he's taken on, when you're talking about opponent records and being so good, then for him to have that type of outlook and say, you know, the three fights that he's had in the UFC so far, I'm pretty happy with that. You know, the two and one record is phenomenal to me. Brendan Allen is coming off a huge career, you know, boost in his win and has been training out of Sanford MMA. So, like, again, you are taking on what's probably going to be your top 10, top 15 fighters in the next two, three years. Like, and I'm not saying for a little bit of time. Like, I think Kyle Dox is going to be a ranked fighter for the rest of his career because that's just how good I think he is. And with the sense of improvement, all that kind of stuff, I just think that there's a lot of opportunity for him to move up. Now, Phil Hawes in the same position now. The thing that I'm not, so the two things about both these guys that I really want to talk about is when you think about opponents and you think about the work and stuff like that, you know, Phil Hawes' record is is one of those ones where you go and look at it and it's just like hardworking mofo. Like the guy had to go on the contender series a few times to be able to get that opportunity, lands the shot hurt around the world, gets in the UFC and I'm going to use the word lucky, which I hate doing in MMA and I've said that a million times, but you know, in his UFC debut, he was supposed to, you know, obviously take on somebody else, but he gets to Jacob Malkoon on short notice. And now Jacob Malkoon is at the time just a Robert Whitaker training partner who is now weighing in for safety purposes. Now he goes and weighs in, makes weight, then goes and gets knocked out in 18 seconds. I mean, if I'm taking the, I'm taking a UFC paycheck for, you know, 18 second knockout, I'm down. Probably the most money I'll make in 18 seconds of my life. But I will say that in the grand scheme of things, that is a much more like blue collar style, you know, uh, fighting record. Just he really had to grind out that. It reminds me a little bit of that Colby Covington uh, scenario, right? The real story where, you know, he was told he's just not a sellable fighter. He can win fights, but we can't promote you. Well, I'm going to turn into the biggest heel the UFC has ever seen since Josh Koscheck and go that route. And now the guy's one, you know, he's definitely one of the most billable fighters in the UFC. So flip the script and go to Kyle Dawkins. It's just like at 10 and one, you know, three of those fights are already in the UFC. So he's at seven and zero before that. And the big thing for me is that Brendan Allen is looking like a top 10 fighter again in the UFC. So even that loss on short note, it's just like, wow. You know, I'm just so excited to see what Kyle Dawkins can do. And it's weird when you base your life around fights like this, you just want to pick the guys that you really could, you know, get behind and enjoy. And I think the Stolfus fight just officially sold me on him. And uh, I really think that he, 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 this is kind of his big break, right? To go three and one against the fighters that he was, he was, I mean, here's the thing. He was supposed to fight Kizriev too, which is another beast on the up and coming scene. So again, 13 and no Russian fighter. Instead, he's taking on Phil Hawes now. Like, 
the guy's probably not going to get a break in his youth security. He seems absolutely okay with that. Like I said, 94% takedown defense. That's going to play very well into his hands if that Philly boxing and that cardio and heart sticks around. Now we go look at the lines. Let's see if I feel somewhat similar about him. And there it is, right? Phil Haas is getting the respect he deserves. He's still a dog, but this is this is identical, right, to the Yuri Proxa and the Dominic Reyes fight. But when you go look at the Proxa fight, that was a domination, right? Because we just talked about how Reyes, there's a lot of things he could have done a bit better there, and it just sucks to see him go down like that. But at the same time, what an amazing fight. What a beautiful attempt to stay in it by Dominic Reyes because he's so much hard and such a gamer. But... Now we're going into a similar fighter like Kyle Dawkins, who's actually coming in as the favorite now at minus 130 with Full Haas being the plus 110, plus 100 dog. Now, I have to side with these lines right now because I do think that I I can't go back now. <laughs> I haven't talked about a fighter more than Kyle Dawkins over the last month. And, you know, this is one where I just can't see him losing only because of the fact that he's been putting in the work with the fights that he has. And frankly, where he's really good, I think it's going to pose problems for, for Phil, Phil Phil Haas. But again, surprise shot, you know, coming in big with those power strikes, even working in some of that wrestling, surprising him against the fence, work that clinch work that's been so good to you against, you know, some of the fighters that you've, you know, got against on your come up and hope for the best because I think that this is a fight where either guy can actually win and that's why the lines are so close. Man, Angela Hill is exactly like one of those fighters we've been talking about when it comes to just not going anywhere. I think this girl's been such a pleasure to work with for the UFC that they could never see her going anywhere. And she's even part of the broadcasting team. It's just, she's definitely making a name for herself right now as just the a face for MMA in general. And I think it's really, really nice to see when you look at some of the body of work that she's put together the last year, it's just really incredible. Uh, her effort, her her improvements, things like that. I think the Ashley Yoder fight really set her back in motion for the path that she wants to be on. But, you know, let, let's let's dig into both these fighters a little bit. You know, Amanda Rebus, the things that I've noticed about her is she throws powerful hooks. You know, she comes in with big, big power, likes to push the pace, get in close. And the thing is, is that I wonder if that works in Angela Hill's favor, because even if you look at the Mackenzie Dern fight, Angela Hill is, oh, at least at the time of Mackenzie Dern, Angela Hill's a, a much better striker. And I think that what Angela Hill is good at is what's going to make her, you know, such an exciting fighter for this fight, because what Rebus is going to be trying to do is very much come in hard, throw power punches, chase her down. But what's Angela Hill really good about? She's good at staying on her feet, staying on those tippy toes, moving around, throwing very quick and crisp jabs. That's what I like about, you know, watching Hill's development over the last year in so many fights because she's constantly moving, the head's moving, the hands are flying. And I think that in her case, the only big rip that you can have on her is that she kind of fades late in fights. So she's a phenomenal first couple rounds fighter. But then you see her kind of take a dip. And the worst part about it is when you look at her fight with Michelle Waterson, the thing about MMA is your fighter also starts to understand range. They start to understand timing. They start to, you know, impose their own on-the-fly game plan. And I think in that fight, you actually saw Michelle Waterson have really, really, and we're going to talk about it, but she has an incredible athletic heart when it comes to this shit because she just stays in fights as long as she humanly can. And I think at that one, you saw her just pull it out of the wazoo and come away with a very, very, very close win. I thought that Angela Hill did enough uh, for the most part. But again, I think that in being an Angela Hill fan and watching her fight so much, you actually come to learn that this is part and parcel of the game. Like, this is who she is. I think that she's actually the type that 
you know, if that gets spread out a little bit, I think we could be watching you do that for five rounds very soon. But it's like how much output and how much of that movement is hindering you in rounds two and three. Because in this fight, I would say that if Rebus isn't fading it as well and that power carries over, it could be a very different fight for, say, the last couple minutes of the second round and the third round. But in this case, I, I kind of want to give some of the cardio advantages to uh, Angela Hill uh, a little reluctantly because I think that from that power uh, aspect of things and, and her ability to maybe avoid those strikes, I think if she plays the defensive striking game, which she's actually kind of good at, it might help her actually secure that victory, even though if it's a decision late, because, you know, the one thing, if you look at the Marina Rodriguez fight with our, uh, you know, friend Amanda Rebus, that was not, that was not crisp. I believe that that was a fairly sloppy experience for her. I think that she she met a much more technical striker who, you know, as Izzy always points out, I mean, it's not about, you know, how hard you land, but it's where you land, you know, and, and when you land. That, that's, that's, that's the perfect example of where the technical striker just out-dueled the powerful striker. And I think that Rebus learned that the hard way. In this fight, though, I would be interested to see if this fight goes to the ground and maybe if she's able to work in some of that jiu-jitsu that she might be able to utilize against a fighter like Angela Hill, who should be a little less powerful. She's going to be a bit smaller. I think that that's where there's some things, you know, in the realm of not just standing and banging that maybe she's able to pull this one off because I do think that Rebus is going to be a favorite. I think that her body of work speaks for itself. The Mackenzie Dern win for where we're seeing Mackenzie at right now then you're looking at, you know, even the loss against Marina Rodriguez, who's now on the main card against Michelle Waters or the main, you know, even headlining the event uh, with Michelle Waterson. So I think that this is one where if you think Rebus is, is you know, powerful striker, going to be able to hold on for the rest of the fight, maybe even finish her, that's your play. But, you know, if, if Angela Hill can do what she's really good at, which is stand her toes, you know, Stick and move, stick and move, stick and move, move that head, move that head constantly. I think that she has a really good opportunity of winning this fight. And I think this is the type of fight where if she can win, you know, this might be finally getting her to that next step because it's those close fights that she can't seem to get, you know, over that hurdle, you know, the Gadellas and things like that. So, you know, I am kind of rooting for Angela Hill in this one only because if, you know, if a fighter deserves a really great opportunity, it's her just for what we've, if you're enjoying fights during the pandemic, man, Angela Hill has a lot to do with it. So, you know, after the Hill, uh, sorry, after the um, Watterson split and the Gadella split, it'd be nice to see her kind of get one under a belt. And, and in this case, I think that Amanda Rebus, despite really good, um, you know, experience under a belt, I think that the two losses via strikes and, and the simple fact that she's going to be taking on someone who's actually a pretty crisp boxer and can move around very well. It should make things very interesting for her. And if she's not able to catch her, you know, how long is it going to take before someone gets frustrated and makes mistakes or, you know, anything of that kind? Because I think if Angela Hill is able, able to just stick and move for three rounds, she's smiling to the bank. Now, let's take a quick look at these lines here. Damn. So Angela Hill opened up a plus 188 dog with rebus coming in at two minus 225. And, you know, that actually improved significantly for Angela Hill. She's now sitting at plus 160, plus 150 range. Then you have Rebus coming in at minus 185, minus 190. So for me, I think that there's some some value on Angela Hill if you're a betting person. For me, like, if I ever do have a play, it's usually something I'm, I'm willing to share. But it, on this card especially, there's a couple dogs that look attractive. But at the end of the day, 
you know, if Ribas is able to kind of outduel her, it's just, it's really tough to see Angela Hill winning a, a long fight against a really powerful striker like this, unless she's able to stay disciplined, avoid the power shots and really just land more and avoid some of the ground. I think that that's where she enjoys fighting on the feet, uh, sticking and moving uh, and making her, making her opponent miss. And so if she's able to do that. Look for her to be very much in the UFC's considerations to get a much bigger fight, you know, come the later parts of 2021 because she's earned it. Someone needs to explain to me why this fight is even before the next one. But in any case, you know, is anybody else crazy excited to watch Gregor get back in there? You know, Double G is someone that if you look into him and you understand MMA, you understand the fight game, you understand what it takes to get to this level. The guy put in so much work as just an NCAA wrestler. Like when you think about coming out of, you know, smaller college, that kind of thing, he just absolutely destroyed that part of, you know, uh, the U.S. when it came to his collegiate wrestling career. It's absolutely marveling to see. And if, if, if you have the time, by all means, go read up on it, because I think that's what made him such an exciting prospect coming into the UFC. You know, he's 13 and one now, and we'll get into that one loss, but you know, some of the stats that you can even see on them, it's just incredible. There's there's like a handful of fighters that have spent, you know, I think it's like over 30 minutes of grappling in their UFC careers. And he's only seen, you know, he, he's, he's held control time for 99.5% of the time. So to grapple for that long and hold position for 99.5% of the time, that beats everybody else out of the water, by the way. Kamara's not there. Your John Jones aren't there. That is number one in the UFC. So for me, I've really understood just how good this man's grappling is. Now, let's take a look at the Kevin Lee fight. In that fight, he very much chose to stand and bang for a while. Kevin Lee came in with the longer legs, the power, all that kind of stuff. And frankly, he lined up a leg kick that was so beautiful that, you know, 90 days, you know, suspension for Gregor. We saw one of his fights followed. So that's why it's been taking him quite some time to get back in there, which has made us, you know, kind of anticipate his return. But, you know, as a wrestler, I, I would have wanted to see him exploit that a bit more. You know, Kevin Lee's very thick and he's got long legs. He's powerful. So, you know, just in terms of all those stats we just discussed, is Kevin Lee a guy that would falter in that position as well? Because, you know, when I'm looking at some of the overall stats here, we don't really see too much of the the takedowns in, in, in terms of like that crazy accuracy that we usually see because Gregor is only coming in at 47% takedown accuracy. So he goes for it, he goes for it. But I think in his sense, you know, defense, I think I don't think anyone's trying to take him down. You know, he's sitting at that 0%, probably been on his back a couple of times. Just kidding. Uh, I, I really believe that this is going to be one where Diego Ferreira is a great BJJ fighter, but He's put so much time into his striking, man. He's been he's been absolutely on fire with with some of the knockouts he's put together. Then he goes and faces Papa's, uh, you know, Papa Power and, and Benil Dariush and gets lit up over there. But who's not losing to Benil Dariush right now? And you know that's the perfect fight for him to go up against, you know, Tony Ferguson now. But you know when you go look at the fight against uh, Benil Dariush, you know that was really close. And it was a, a very close split decision. And I think that's where you're wondering, you know, who did what in the later rounds. I thought that Benio very much, you know, 
ended the fight better and looked a lot better in terms of you know the healthier fighter not taking so many blows he dropped diego a couple times that's where i'm curious to see if gregor is able to get past that type of striking because even when you look at the kevin lee fight kevin lee was landing just such a beautiful crisp jab and even the strikes coming back were landing a bit but they weren't doing much damage even though kevin lee had a cut so I'm really interested to see where Gigi takes this fight because, you know, in some of his experience with that strike, is he going to be a little bit more fearful now of getting in there and trying to strike with people like that? I think the big thing for me is just looking at his past record, you know, 13-1, and that's the only blemish, and he's been phenomenal leading into that fight. So with this one, it's like he's still getting that quality caliber of fighter, man. He's he's a top-10 fighter, bar none, in the UFC, and so in his division. And so that's where I think that this Diego Ferrer fight makes sense. And he's coming off a loss against Benil Dariushki to keep his um, rankings, you know, in place. And that's where I think that if the power comes into play, Diego Ferrer could come away with a pretty big win. We've seen the chin uh, of Gregor's, you know, get caught, but hands were down. You know, he was kind of spinning as he saw it. Like it just, it was a kick that Kevin Lee set up absolutely perfectly. Gave Faraz Zahabi a jumping high five right after. I mean, it, it was it was a perfectly fought fight for Kevin Lee, and I think it was a great learning experience for Gregor. And then the same can be said for Diego, who went up against Kings of MMA's, you know, coach galore. Everybody loves this man. He's such a sweet man. And, you know, getting the awards of like fatherly figures type of things. These are the guys that you want to see succeed, right? And so, you know, that split decision basically got him an opportunity to get close to that title shot, which he probably thinks he deserved a long time ago based on his record and the types of wins he's put together. So with Diego Ferrer getting now an opportunity against a guy like Gregor, I think that's kind of now in the same boat. He's got to now prove that he needs to get back into that title picture because Gregor is now back on the come up, hoping for that win against um, Diego Ferrer. So when we look at the lines here, my word. Gregor was actually opened at a minus 200 favorite with Ferreira coming in at plus 150. That's a little surprising for me. I'm not going to lie. But the minus 180, minus 170, it's coming back down to earth with Ferreira sitting at a plus 145. If I remember correctly, I, I'm quite certain that that Ferreira and uh, Benil Dariush fight closed at even money. So I'm kind of enjoying the statistical geek side of this fight because, you know, Diego's striking advantage is, is there. But, you know, when it comes to striking accuracy... GG's actually better with the 47%, 49% versus Diego's 37%. And Diego's got 68% takedown defense. And his BJJ is insane. Gregor has worked his way to a BJJ blue belt. So all this little chess games that you see in MMA fights with these high-level fighters, this is the fight that we're going to see that in. I thought this fight or the Neil Magny fight were the perfect options for main eventing, but I think that with how exciting Marianne, uh, how good Marina Rodriguez is and Michelle Watterson has has been in her fights, it's kind of those things that it, it makes sense that it's a very billable fight to put the two girls on there. And, you know... Like I said, all that happens is it just makes this main card look so much more beautiful. And I think that Gillespie, I guess, I think Gillespie has, has a very good opportunity to come up with the victory. But if you go look at that last fight with the power situation and just not being completely disciplined and being in the wrong place, wrong time with Kevin Lee seeing that right off the bat and landing clean, those are the situations where he's going to want to keep his hands up. He's going to want to avoid those areas where if Diego can come in flying or he can take you down for maybe some BJJ uh, fun, I think that's an area where you just want to avoid the mat and kind of avoid that close distance uh, for the most part. Man, I'm actually a little surprised that this couldn't have been maybe more of the uh, headlining prelim style of fight. Maybe they're trying to 
you know, build some more of the heavyweight fighters. But, you know, Maurice Green has been in some interesting fights in the UFC. You know, since his tough appearance, he's gone three and three. And honestly, that, that victory against Gian Vellante is like one of my favorite fights for the worst. Gian Vellante is going to go down in my record books as one of the best fighters of all time. Don't at me. Uh, but with that specific fight of Green and, and Vellante, I mean, Gian Vellante was on top. And he basically got tired from just grappling. Michael Bisping's call of that fight is one of the most underrated calls of all time. But um, he says something like he got exhausted in the most traditional way. Yeah, guys like us who aren't training for months on end to be able to go those three rounds. He basically got choked out on top just from being tired and Mo Green was able to pull that off. And so with those are the fights are coming away with victories and there's huge evidence to suggest that, you know, you've been finished quite a bit in the early parts of say the first two rounds. That's where you really need to kind of figure out well, what's going wrong. And I think for Mo Green, it's it, say for this fight, He's going to have the length advantage. He's got pretty good kicks. So, you know, stay disciplined. Don't tire yourself out, you know. I think in in past fights, he, he, he just, he kind of wants to maintain that, you know, distance and keep the, the, the long strikes going, but he does still get tired from it. He does get pushed up. He, he does let people land. So when you're throwing kicks, you got to keep your hands up. And I think with Gian Vellante, he was getting hit quite a bit. And Vellante is moving up to heavyweight all the way down from middleweight at one point in his career. So, you know, that's where I think that this needs to be a very tactical fight from Maurice Green's side. I think that he has the kicks. He has some of the longer jabs, style punches to be able to keep this fight at bay and avoid some of the ground. Because I think with the Lima, you know, we've seen him have very interesting outings in the UFC. When you look at his weird trick fight, I thought that was one of his better outings, bar none. And, you know, even early, he, he got taken down by, you know, a very credible BJJ practitioner who they thought, you know, if it went to the ground, Delima was going to have serious issues, but he swept them on the first takedown. And to be quite honest, after that, the fight was Delima's without question. Now, he wasn't really able to get huge finishes, short notice fights and all that kind of stuff. So that's a bit of a question, but he's finished quite a bit in the past. And so for me, what I like about this fight is it's a great test for these guys who are a lot later in their careers, are going up against guys who should be able to do exactly what they've lost to in the past. So if you're getting better, this should be the fight where you can actually prove that because with the Lima getting choked out on the ground, you know, by, by a, a big man like Alexander Romanov kind of put his career in a bit of a further path in that sense. But again, coming off of that loss against a guy that we've seen as a huge prospect, you know, Juan Espino and him had a very controversial fight. Supposedly nobody even wanted to fight him. And that's why Espino took the fight. So those are the little things with, um, with, with, you know, the fights that we're looking at now, I think that there's a huge opportunity for both these guys. And maybe that's why they're on the main card. Like, I'm picking my brain to really figure that out because we even had Philippi Linz and Ben Rothwell on the prelims before this. So it's a really interesting call, and maybe there's something that we don't know. But in this case, I just think... Delima is going to work in close. He's going to try to get some powerful shots off. The thing is, is that he's very much at his best in the first two rounds. And green has definitely been finished in that time and when you think about some of the ways he's won his fights post tough uh tough season i just it's hard to get behind him when it's just such a finite way to win the fight and it's just it takes so much discipline to stand there kick throw long shots back away avoid any type of you know even to move around that much it's just very tiring and i think that's where 
if he's not able to do it, it's going to be what dictates uh, the rest of the fight for him because I think that the main problem is going to be what Delima brings, say, in the first two rounds. Now, if he if he's able to outlast that, he's got a really good shot of being, you know, the huge underdog winner because let's take a look at these lines, right? Ah, without question. I mean, again, I... I understand why the line even is moving in the other opposite direction with Mo Green opening a plus 150 and now getting close to that plus 170 range. I mean, like I said, when you're when you're when your uh, range of winning is so finite, it, it makes sense for even guys like you know, who aren't in the coaching realm or capping lines for Vegas that we can make those calls because in this case, the Lima outside of that fight against. Alexander Romanov, I mean, he should be the better in close striker with the better clinch game. He has, you know, pretty good cardio for his size. And fact of the matter is, when we look at some of the groundwork, I mean, his strikes weren't as powerful as you'd hope, but he was able to stay in very much, you know, opportune positions against Weirtrek, who was a much better BJJ fighter that people thought he was able to get into mount a couple of times. So that's where I'm just seeing so many different areas where it just looks like the Lima's the better fighter. So, I mean, in this case, I would very much consider the under or the or the not go the distance. It's probably in the 300, so maybe a parlay bet if that's your thing. But, you know, the way I'm seeing this, it's very much lining up with, you know, the research I've done and just what I see in Mo Green over the over the years. And I hope he can pull it off, at least for his own sake and for everybody involved with, with his camp because he's such a long-time fighter and I think that we've seen him really give it his all. He's definitely at the end of his road. And I think that when you, when you consider being a plus 150 plus 170 dog there's nothing better than coming out as a victor in that fight so all the all, all the best of luck to both these guys i think it's gonna be a fun fight again surprise it's on the main card and after some of these other fights but hopefully there's something in it for all of us jeff neil and neil magni i'm so surprised this was not made the main event and i i still am kind of wondering why and i've explained to myself why i believe the ufc would pick michelle waterson and marina rodriguez fight because there's a lot of good experience there for both girls to kind of you know kicks versus punches so we'll get into that a little later but you know i think this fight is is basically a main card fight i mean i think this is a co-main for a pay-per-view type fight two guys who very much you know can hit that top five in no time very much, you know, title challengers, that kind of thing. I'm curious to see why, because maybe it's they were both so dominated in different realms, right? When you look at Neil Magny, the way that Chiesa fight went, you know, it was so fun to watch. I thought, you know, Chiesa is just, you don't realize how how overwhelming he can be as a fighter till you really see him in there. You know, he's tall, he's thick. In, in a very lean way, if you will. And, you know, he was able to overpower Neil Magny in some of the most technical ways you'd ever see. And, and that was a very surprising fight for me. I think that it's it's very rare that I can come out and say like, oh, wow, that's how that, that's how that happened. But it's like Chiesa was that dominant. You know what I mean? Like that's the that's the part that blew me away about that fight. Neil Magny did everything he could to keep the fight standing and do his thing. And I'm not really sure... Uh, you know, if that was something where we just undersold Chiesa, but man, I believed in his sick jitsu for so long, but there it is, man. Just absolutely beautiful ground game. You know, maybe people don't you know appreciate that as much as me, but I was loving every minute of that fight. And you kind of go to the other side, right? You have the Jeff Neal Wonderboy fight. So now you have guys who are actually considered very, very good strikers in their division. And, you know, 
Fighting Steven Wonderboy in a stand-up fight, to me, seems like one of the most exhausting, frustrating, and, you know, why for five rounds would I want to just do that? And, and it sucks because, like, in camp, all you're telling yourself is, oh, my God, I got to be better than this guy. I got to be better than this guy. And, and, you know, for Jeff Neal, who's coming off being such a great striker and having such a good all-around game, there are moments where, like, just in Steven Wonderboy Thompson's footwork and where he put himself, like, Jeff Neal would have trouble kind of getting off. And so you can see the discrepancy in the strikes and things like that. Like Wonderboy did absolutely phenomenally in that fight. I think that was a tough fight for Jeff Neal going into it. And, you know, it, it, to strike with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is a huge feat. And I think that's where you have to see, you know, so we've seen guys have huge success against them, but it's about tailoring your game plan towards what you see in a guy like Steve Wonderboy because he's so unorthodox. And when you're going into a fight like this with Neil versus Neil, I think that Neil Magny has a great opportunity here to kind of do something similar, but more from an overall MMA standpoint. I think Jeff Neil, you know, one of the most impressive 13 and three records you'll see in MMA right now. When you think about losing a title fight to Kevin Holland at the XKO uh, middleweight division, you know, little things like that. It's just, he's seen so much leading up to that Dana White contender series and then sits at five and one in the UFC after fighting Stephen one boy Thompson, who is pound for pound, in my opinion, the best, if not one of the best strikers in the UFC. So, you know, going into this one, it's like if Neil's able to kind of dictate more of the striking game and avoid, because I think that what Neil Magny's great at doing, I just realized I have to say double Neil, right? The way Magny's great at, at utilizing fighters is that he can fight long, but then he gets it in close and he's able to work in some wrestling and that gas tank is just forever. One of the best gas tanks you'll ever see in, in Neil Magny. And so that's where I think like with this not being a five round fight, which he might be accustomed to, uh, I mean, <laughs> training wise i mean he just seems to have the cardio to go for as many rounds as he wants and that's where i think in this fight if he's able to kind of work in some of that ground groundwork and he's able to avoid some of the power punch from jeff i think this is a tough fight for him to lose i think jeff neal has a really good all-around game he has credible power in his hands the one thing i'm just curious about is if this fight goes to the ground how well can he deal with him you know when you're looking at how good man magni should be from the distance that's where i'm thinking like the 2.05 um defensive striking is just, you know, if you're only taking that much in, say, you know, per minute span, I mean, I, I can honestly see very good paths for Bangy to win this fight. In Neil's side, you know, he's going to be able to let off a lot more in this fight. I think his footwork's going to be there. I think that landing against... Wonderboy versus landing against Magny are two very different things, and he should be able to find some success here. I think that's the best part for Jeff Neal because how frustrated he must be coming out of that fight with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson because, you know, I felt like it was tough for him to find those shots that, you know, could really dictate his game and, and have him kind of swing any momentum his way. Because with Neal, you know, and the thing with that Chiesa fight is that was just a few months ago, and I think that when you consider just how good Chiesa looked in that fight, you really want to hope that Maggie's, you know, taking his grappling and his, and his wrestling to a whole new level because both these guys are great at avoiding the strikes, right? 56%, you know, striking defense on uh, Neil Magny's side and 61% on Jeff Neal's side. So that's where I'm thinking to myself, like the cardio to be able to throw more. Jeff Neal is more of a guy that's going to try to hunt you and knock you out, whereas... You know, Maggie's not Maggie's very much okay with taking this fight, you know, deep waters, maybe just hanging around on the ground, seeing what all you can do. That's where I'm hoping that, you know, we're thinking about all of the different ways that he can win the fight. 
that's where I'm seeing the most, you know, he's going to be able to use some elbows and some knees and just work in the volume type of strikes, whereas Jeff Neal is going to be looking for those blows. And, you know, for me, man, when I'm looking at a record of like 24 and nine versus 13 and three, that's why I respect Jeff Neal's record because at that 13 and three, the three losses are very respectable. And, you know, when you're looking at a guy like Neil Magny, who's just seen it all, done it all, it's at least what gives you that respect to pin them against each other. Because, you know, outside of that real big length, Jeff Neal might be able to get in there and do some serious damage. You know, takedown defense of 92% on Jeff Neal's side. I mean, if he's not able to get this fight to the ground and Jeff Neal's just pounding away for three rounds, you know, this could be a huge fight for Jeff Neal. And that's where I think that, you know, I left that stat for last because I think it's the one that stood out to me the most. You know, Neil Magny only lands about 45% of his takedowns. And like I said, Jeff Neal's blocking 92% of the ones coming at him. So it's interesting to see how well these chess matches play out. I think that this is one where there's so much length advantage, but then there's so much power and so much defense on another side that it's curious to see if Neil Magny is able to stack up to what we saw from a Wonderboy perspective and maybe not as a striker, but just as an overall MMA fighter. Now, when I go look at the lines, wow. God damn. Jeff Neal opens up at a minus 215 favorite. Wow. That's probably my most surprising line on this card. I thought these guys would be much closer than that. And to be quite honest, I thought I saw a few more pats to victory on Neil Magny's side with the length and stuff like that. But probably getting no respect in his striking and just being that, you know, cardio best base wrestler who's going to be looking to just volume strike and keep you in your bad areas and just deep waters type of thing. Because Jeff Neal is consistently sitting at a minus 200. And Neil Magny has not moved from that plus 170 to a plus 160 range. So, I mean, if you're a Magny fan, you're probably hoping to make some big money this weekend. I think that if there was a fighter on this card that deserves a bit of look when it comes to just that much of a dog, maybe it's him because I love Jeff Neal striking and I love how defensive he is about the game because that's my number one um, rated fact. I mean, that's why Floyd Mayweather is my favorite fighter boxer of all time. It's just... The art is not to get hit. You learn this shit to not die, not get hit. And so, you know, you could do the damage, but the less damage you take, the better. And, and I think that's where smart fighters take that approach. And in this case, you know, I think that's where you're seeing the line kind of, you know, dictate where Maggie's coming out of such a dominant loss to uh, Michael Chiesa. And now is going up against a pretty good striker that, despite the reach, Seems to have very, very good backing from Vegas and betters. Razor hand here, absolutely depressed that Deco Sanchez is not on this card fighting Cowboy Cerrone. Not only did these guys have bad blood coming out of the Jackson Wink camp from back in the day, you know, there was a lot of reasons that even Cowboy was so motivated to fight and it's what probably drove him a lot in the camp. It's so many good things and fun things could come out of this, you know, fight and this card, but you know, the Josh Fabia situation is just a little gut-wrenching for me. I'm a little older than a lot of folks that, that kind of maybe follow this for from, from at least the social media perspective. And it's kind of crazy to think that the guy that's done all that for the sport is is doing the things that he's doing. Because for me, I understand the damage and stuff, but the things that he's saying, the way he's going about it, it's just so heart-wrenching and so shocking in a way that I'm, I'm a little distraught by it. And for me, I just... I guess I'm just upset the fact that, you know, Diego got let go, basically got paid out for the fight and for the win already, which is kind of the UFC's way of saying, like, okay, you know. Uh, and I think that some of the stuff that you've seen 
released, should it have been released, could have been gone about more professionally Would better management have maybe helped him in that light. You know, you know, Bellator, Scott Coker has openly said they don't want to sign him. So there's little things like that that are not going his way. I think that if there was, you know, there's no such thing as a promotion that won't sign a man. But I do think that this is a situation where I don't know who else is on his side. I don't know who else he has in his corner. I mean, he's doing interviews, but breaking down in the middle of the interviews. You know, there's an Anthony Smith one out right now, if you haven't checked it out. But he's he's doing his best to vocalize his point of view. But it's just, I don't know how many people he's got, you know, kind of convinced or trying to figure out what they can do. Because, you know, this is a situation where he's saying things that are a little bit more outrageous than they need to be. I don't know how much truth there is to the... QSC hunting him down to kill him, but you know, the memes are out there to justify it. Um, on a lighter note, so we got Alex uh, Moreno coming in there to replace him. And now, funny enough, not to completely still continue this negative tone, but if there's one narrative about this fight that I'm not enjoying, it's the Moreno being this like new fighter to the UFC kind of thing. Like, I've been hearing that in multiple outlets, and it's like the guy's seven and four in the UFC. I think I did a prospect piece on him in like 2017 or something. And for me, it's just really funny to see that a guy who's pretty much only losing a guy, you know, the Chaos Williams fight, like that was so clean, you know, and he, he loves to push forward. He's very crazy like that. And I think that's where you're seeing some of the opportunities for him get squatted against really technical strikers that can kind of put it on him. You know, the race McKee fight was his last big dub. And I think that he's, he's obviously a UFC caliber fighter. And now he's getting that big, big opportunity to take, take on one of the pound for pound legends. And, you know, I don't say that with, with like, very lightly because when you look at Cerrone's record, I mean, the guy's literally only lost to, you know, past champions. And he's even avenged the um, Jamie Varner losses. You know, I, I think that the fact that this man has had the opportunity to even avenge some of the early losses in his career is kind of my favorite part about it. It's what makes his record just stand out so much to me because I think that when you think about how many of these guys have touched gold in, in promotions? It's just crazy that that's how good Cerrone's been. Everybody knows the term, you know, always a bridesmaid, not a bride. But, you know, it's funny because in fighting, I think that operates in multiple ways. Because let's just be honest, I think Cowboy Cerrone makes very good money from the uh, sponsorships and the deals and the UFC contract that he does have. So I don't think he's upset about anything. I think that he's been able to carry forward, make the right, you know, health decisions to be able to go for this long. He's definitely had injuries both inside and outside the octagon, right? We all have seen the memes of, you know, cowboy tested and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, coming off of like things, just for me, they always will stand out that Jamie Barner, Benson Anderson, I just, I can't believe that being able to go against these guys, lose, make it back, and then go through the career of just a guy who just doesn't lose against anyone but champs. It's just a phenomenal thing to see. And I hope he's the kind of guy that never retires. But again, health comes first. And what I do like, I mean, we talked about some of the successes he had, you know, the Nico Price fight, that was actually a majority draw. I believe that was a majority draw. And so, you know, that actually turned into a no contest because of a little, you know, puff, puff pass for maybe not so much passing for Nico Price. And so I thought that fight was fun. It looked like it was a little bit more technical from the strong side, but Nico had power. He came forward a lot and, and definitely landed the shots that he needed to. But that's where I kind of wanted to see how how good Cerrone's in this fight because Alex Moreno likes to push the pace. He likes to come forward, and I don't think he's as technical. Now, the one areas we've seen people really succeed against Cerrone is the the body strikes. You know, hit him hit him low, 
I think that his legs are fairly strong. He seems to take the low kicks pretty well. He checks, he checks them pretty well as well. But I think that the, the body is where you got to go after him. If you get in close, same thing. Don't be going for the chin. Go right for the body. Try to get those liver shots in. I think that there's a good chance Moreno's going to be a heavy underdog in this, and rightfully so. But the one thing about Cerrone we've seen is against even the champions he's faced, there's paths there to victory. And, you know, if it's not the body shots, it's going to be, you know, very much getting in there, trying to avoid some of those, you know, he loves the Muay Thai and the kickboxing, right? Like that's how his style really resonates with a lot of people. And if you stand and bang with them, you know, he's happy to do that. I think that he's himself got such good body kicks. And, you know, if he incorporates those leg kicks, I think Moreno's going to get slowed down really quickly. And for me, I, I just think that if he's going to win the fight, it's going to be in the first two rounds because I just don't see Moreno being a fighter that Cerrone is going to have any issues with come third round because in pretty much all facets of the game, he should be pretty well advanced. Uh, and, and add in the cardio factor, I just don't see any reason for Cowboy to lose the third round if it goes into the, you know, the later part of the fight. But if Moreno has an opportunity, it's most certainly to rush in very smartly and you know, avoid some of those big kicks to the body because it will tire you out. You're coming on short notice anyway. But then also try to land those big strikes, you know, most of the body. I think if you get the opportunity to throw, you know, big hooks to the body instead of maybe the head, and if you're getting close, throw some uppercuts there. I think that's going to be where you might be able to stumble uh, Cerrone a bit. You know, he definitely does get stumbled by, by um, headshots, but I think that in terms of winning the fight early and really being able to rock him, the body's just not been nice to him. But outside of that, you know, you look at the way Cerrone has, you know, in terms of paths to victory, I think that the kickboxing alone, you know, utilizing those kicks, really beating him up. And you could probably get this fight up against Fence to the ground if you'd really like it to later. But I also think that Moreno is like such a gamer, right? He, he, he His style allows him to be the kind of guy that enjoys taking damage. You know, I like that, you know, Cerrone's tech yielding fits in the UFC after all this time is still 73%. So for Moreno, it's really, you know, I, I'm looking at a, a ways of, of him really just trying to get in close try to throw some power shots in there, really finish the fight early. And, you know, if, he, if he's got that in him where he's thinking the cardio might not be there because of how short his camp has been, I think that this might be the best fight for him to just go for broke in the first round and hope for the best and try to avoid any of those big kicks that might put him out. To take a look at the lines right now, but I think we have a pretty good idea where they're going to be. And so, whoa, that's hilarious. So, I mean, it... If Donald Cerrone was a minus 140 right now, I if, he'll probably lose after I make this speech, but that's something that I would have to put my name on and say, people, go anywhere, everywhere, how much ever you can, go get it done. But that minus 40 is now moving closer to that minus 185, minus 200 range. I think Alex Moreno does deserve to be closer to that plus 150, plus you know, 180, 190 range. I think that you're going to see this line definitely move a bit further, maybe close to that minus 220, minus 225, maybe even a minus 250 for Donald Cerrone as the fight shapes are up. I mean, a lot of the time when we see some of the commercials and some of the, you know, fighters pre-fight, it kind of dictates a lot. So let's see how the weigh-ins go once they wear the rest of those videos. And I think this is going to be one where Cerrone does not see himself losing, especially the fact that he's training for Diego. It's going to be a, a, a tough, tough fight for, for Moreno to pull off. But like I said, we've seen Cerrone lose. We know the body is sometimes the place to go. And if he's got it in him, beat those kicks, get in there, baby, and just go for broke and come out with that first or second round win. 
it's happened. You know, it's funny because leading up to this fight, I made so many jokes about, you know, how many other fights that we could have maybe had as a main event. But, you know, in all seriousness, when you look at the rankings of both fighters, they're actually the highest ranked fighters in their respective divisions. And to be quite honest, go through their records. And frankly, these girls are primo. And we're talking about the losses too, right? When you're losing to the Tisha Torres's and the Rose Nama Eunice's of, of the world, <clears throat> it, it sets the tone for who you are as a fighter. And I think that Michelle Watterson really, you know, that Angela Hill fight for me, you know, whoever you thought what, I think that could have gone either way. I really felt like that was one where we saw the heart. We just saw how good she was able to, you know, outlast her opponent, utilize her game plan, stick to some, stick to the kicks. <laughs> I want to say that, but uh, that's where I'm seeing some really good success from her across the board. And when you go to Marina Rodriguez, I feel like she's someone that's, you know, crawling up the ranks very quietly, not the fighter that everybody really wants to talk about because of how many other fighters we've kind of, you know, got at the top right now that are just flying with with so much you know just positive energy and things like rose nami's winning the title you know <laughs> valentina shevchenko but in any case you know carla sparza my favorite if not one of my favorite female fighters just for everything she's accomplished and has beaten both of these ladies and when you look at their ufc records it's fighters like that you know who have touched gold that that are posing problems tisha torres is coming back very strong again and and for me, with Marina Rodriguez, it's like this is where the bump really comes from. You know, when you have those wins on your record, you know, she's been able to beat the Tisha Torres's. She's actually come away with victories over Amanda Ribas, who's on early in the fight anyways, via finish. So I think that that's, that's where we're seeing the growth of, of what really could be a potential title challenger in the near future. Because, you know, a big win against Michelle Watterson, who's probably in that realm now as well, working her way back up. I think that that's where, you know, these two are very exciting. You know, Cynthia Calvillo draw you know she's had draws with random marcos too like that that's where i'm seeing so much excitement coming out of her camp i feel like she's more of the fist fists of flying whereas michelle watterson's going to definitely be throwing a lot of kicks and when you go look at the stats i mean a lot of head strikes things like that from both fighters but i do think that michelle uh, michelle watterson's going to be attacking via via distance coming in with the, with the kicks a lot more i think marina rodriguez is going to be able to close the distance throw throw boxing out there that's what's really got her to this point and when you look at some of the uh, other you know comparable stats me both these girls pretty much fight the distance they rarely are, are they kind of seeing seeing anything under that and 12 minutes and 13 to 14 minutes of fight time you know those are the things that i like to look out at and you know striking actually very much similar on par at the 50 49 range and they take similar amount of damage like this is a very close fight and i think their defense 59 percent marina there's 67 for michelle waterson like these are the things that i love about both fighters because i think it's going to be very very close and you're just going to have this you know boxer style striker and, and you know karate style fighter that are really going to be able to showcase which one is better at least from their skill standpoint because in the fight against Angela Hill with Michelle Watterson I think that she was able to prove that you know the footwork the dancing the boxing the stick and move to be honest can get tiring and someone with good heart good cardio who's kind of managing their their open a bit better can kind of steal the fight in the last few rounds and come away with that split decision so with Angela it's very you know similar topic of just like that always the bridesmaid never the bride with with um Donald Cerrone but like you can kind of make a similar argument right now for Michelle Watterson who's now facing you know getting back to facing some of the best of the best in you know after losing to Rose Namus and fighters like that gotta be excited for it i think that there's potential for a finish here i think that if marine rodriguez can can land pretty strongly there, there's a chance that michelle watterson 
does go down and it would be interesting to see the lines you know I, there's a bunch of there's i think two or three fights a bunch uh two or three fights where i really do think that if you're playing the playing the the vegas lines the unders and the you know not to go the distance are definitely in play and with this one especially i think that you know if, if it's leaning towards the juicier side uh where there could be a finish i think this is one to very much consider the thing about Michelle Watterson is she's just such a gamer with so much heart. You know, you saw in the Rose Namajunas fight, the way she had to tap, it's just like, Rose is like, okay, I got to do this girl and just, you know, finish her in a big way. And with Marina Rodriguez, you know, it, it's kind of similar. The way you saw, you know, that fight go down against Amanda Rebus, I mean, I think she, she showcased really good accuracy in a position where, you know, I think the fight was relatively close and it's just the sloppiness versus the technical striker just, just came out in, in a big way. And, you know, her only loss is a split to my girl Carla Sparza. So for me, it's like she's naturally able to keep the fights close. So I'm actually excited mostly to see what that underline looks like. So I'll take a look at that. But that's outside of that, you know, I think Michelle Watterson, probably a bit of an underdog. I mean, we're going to check out the lines right now. But again, when you're thinking about the puncher versus the, the kicker. I mean, a part of me wants to give some credit to the kicker, but at the same time, like the power needs to be there. I think that she's got the heart, she's got the cardio um, and skill always. But at the same time, I think Marina's going to really bring uh, a fighting style that it's going to be a bit more overwhelming than, say, um, you know, a jabber and, and, you know, combo style puncher like an Angela Hill <clears throat> that took her to a split. So let's take a look. Oh, damn. That move big time. Wow. Okay. So, Marina Rodriguez opened at a minus 155 and now coming at a minus 220, minus 225. That's a big deal. I mean, Michelle Watterson opened at a plus 135 and now coming at a plus 170. I mean, to be quite honest, is that a sprinkling opportunity? I'm not even sure. I mean, I, I personally don't see it. I'm sure a lot of people will. I think that at that minus 155, if you did get on Marina Rodriguez, I think that's phenomenal value. I think that that's a fighter that... You know, when you look at what she's been able to do in the octagon, I think that it's going to be very tough for Michelle Watterson to not only have to do what she's able to do for three rounds, but all five. And if, if it's similar to, you know, what we've seen in the Angela Hill fight, that's where I can kind of see her having success, right? Maybe deal with some damage. Get, get keep the fight real close in the first three rounds where maybe you can steal one of those rounds and then really give it your all in those rounds four and five where maybe marina might not be so experienced and, and, and might actually lose a bit of her step being you know some of the power that she has and how she likes to strike in volumes especially early but yeah i think leg kicks get her slow you know work in maybe some of that ground game if, if it's there that jackson wink boys you know they don't play around and i think that if she's able to kind of showcase all of that there, there's a very good chance she can pull off this upset. But if she's standing in boxing range, getting beat up, you know, that's the stuff you want to avoid in this fight. And I just think right now the lines are dictating that it's a big opportunity for Marina Rodriguez. So, I mean, that that's pretty much the whole card there. And, you know, I, I would be lying if I didn't say, you know, the prelims as usual have some really, really good fights that could easily be on the main card and obviously vice versa. But at the same time, losing two big fights was was kind of the rough part for me. But like the fact that we still get to see the Diego Ferreira fight is pretty amazing. I think that's a big one to watch. And, you know, Donald Cerrone, every time he steps in there, man, gotta have that heart in it. You know, it's just, it's one of the best fighters to watch on the planet. And so, you know, really looking forward to this one. We got so many fights this weekend. Media access for Bellator, NPFL. So thank you guys for everything. Please like, 
follow, subscribe, hit that bell for, for notifications. It's been a pleasure. Looking forward to the next one. Peace.